My first flat, the rent was $5 per person. Per week? Yeah. What? $5. But $2 for the kitty as well. To cover food. Oh, yes. $7. Imagine living on $7 a week. I just can't. I think there was a general air of optimism then about life was okay. I used to listen to people predicting the future in the year 2000. And they said you would have so much leisure time you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Oh, biggest lie. Because <laughs> computers would take over and it would all be but We're living in this situation where we're still having to do all the menial tasks and AI is taking over and writing poetry and making art and that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. So I'm really interested in talking about drug harm because in New Zealand studies say that half of New Zealanders have tried recreational drugs at some point in their lifetime, but only 12% of New Zealanders are estimated to have had some sort of substance misuse disorder in their lifetime. And I'm really interested to know what makes a difference. Why is it that not every person who has tried a recreational drug becomes addicted or comes to harm because of their addiction. And we spend $350 million per year on drug harm, but this is mostly on law enforcement rather than treatment. And then the elephant in the room is prohibition, which labels some drugs as illegal and others as freely available. And when we talk about alcohol, it's one of the most harmful drugs to both the person and the community. We bring in billion in tax from alcohol sales, but it actually causes $7.4 billion per year of harm to the person in terms of healthcare costs, injury, ACC, mental health issues for the rest of the family, family violence, and we say that's okay. So I'm really interested to bring in Dr. Adrian Gray. He's a recently retired doctor who's worked as a rural GP and over the last 20 years has been an addiction specialist. He's worked in prisons and in the community in alcohol drug services and specializes in opiate addiction. Addiction is something that's really interested me recently because it's something that's part of this big mammoth, which is the mental health crisis globally, and it seems more so in westernized civilizations. It's surprising that there's so many people affected by substance misuse, yet as a doctor that's only graduated in 2017, only six years ago, I received almost no educational training on this topic. So I'm really interested to hear from you, Dr. Adrian Gray, about your insights and how you came to be an addiction specialist. Thank you. Thank you very much for 
inviting me. If you got nothing in 2017, we got less. And, and back in <laughs> Interestingly, during my psychiatric run, I was assigned a patient by Professor Dobson down in Christchurch. And he was one of the absolute pioneers in New Zealand of opioid substitution treatment. And this guy who I talked to for some hours used to line up every morning at the hospital for methadone. And I, during the time I talked to him, it at least became apparent to me that he didn't have two heads. He was just one of us. And uh, it could happen to anybody, but addiction is certainly a condition which favours the poverty-stricken. And addiction will produce poverty just in the same way that poverty will produce addiction. They, they work together. Yeah, I was 20 years working for CADS Auckland, and I will just comment in passing that any opinions that I offer are strictly my own and not, I don't have any expectation that they should be traced back to my <laughs> employers over that period of time. But I did come to a number of realisations during the time that I worked there. Like most people who go into the field, I really had very little exposure to it beforehand, apart from that patient that I had when I was a student. But... One of the things that I came to realise quite quickly was there was a real commonality amongst people with addictive disorders, by which I want to say that I don't wish to generalise. Everybody has their own story and their own pathway to get to where they have in life, and I wouldn't want to be accused of lumping everybody under the same umbrella, but there certainly are some common factors which become very apparent. The incidence of abuse, both in males and females, was very high and the, the incidence of disturbed childhoods was very high and it was impossible to believe that it wasn't relevant to where they got to. And what you come to realise after a while is that addiction or drug use, or shall we say excessive drug use, is really the client's attempt to control what is otherwise the uncontrollable. And what provides the energy to their repeated use of those substances is that it's what they have to make life manageable. And you come to realise that they're not so much somewhat weak as extremely strong and resilient because it takes a lot of work and a lot of ingenuity to maintain an addiction. And um, these people who've um, come from backgrounds, some, you know, difficult backgrounds, we talk about adverse childhood experiences and yeah. all that, you know, why is it that these result in addiction or other mental health issues? The current kind of the concept which makes sense to me, I should say, is that all of us take on a, a burden of distress and discomfort from experiences we have at an early age. And some of us are much more resilient than others and for a variety of reasons manage better. And some of us are exposed to far more trauma than others. There's no doubt that the more severe and frequent and repetitive the trauma, the more likely there are to be difficulties later on. I think it's useful to think in terms of not so much mental illness as an accumulation of mental injury. And what that tends to create is a dysfunctional system, often associated with significant anxiety. I think it's very useful, but not necessarily universally accepted, that so-called mental health problems and maybe the epidemic of mental health that we're told we're experiencing is more like unresolved distress associated with events in the past that have not been adequately resolved. Or the person concerned hasn't been able to access the kind of assistance and support to allow them to resolve it. 
Did you ever have patients who didn't have any trauma or any sort of history of struggles or anything like that? They do say, don't they, that addicts come in all forms and all shapes and there's no common features, but I wouldn't really accept that, not from my experience. There was a white-collar version of addiction, but being white-collar, being middle-class, is a major protective factor in addiction. As I say, the effort and the cost associated with maintaining addiction is multiplied exponentially if you have no resources to fall back on. Again, speaking generally, the better off you are, the more comfortable you are, the less impact an addiction is going to have, which may work against you because it may, may mean that you're much later presenting for help and treatment. And what sort of efforts were these people going to to maintain their addiction? I worked in the opioid substitution treatment service. For that, that group, you would generally assume that their drug of choice was opioids, which is obviously a painkiller. All their day's activities became orientated around obtaining their next dose of opiates. Because the thing about opiates, which is somewhat unique in the spectrum of drugs that we worked with, is that they're not in themselves a bad drug. If you have a ready supply of opiates so that you're not experiencing withdrawal, if you have a ready supply of opiates so that you're not doing crime to pay for it, if you have a ready supply of opiates so you're not having to acquire substances on the street that may be not what you are told they are, you can probably take them for a very long time without experiencing any real harms. The harm comes when you can't get the drug and it's links you have to go to get the drug. Which was why when I first started working in the CAD service, I was so impressed by the opioid substitution treatment because it just had this absolute common sense component to it. What was the common sense component of it? The common sense approach is to completely destigmatize and ignore the behavior and accept it as something that needs to, that they have learned that they need to do. I mean, I can remember as a general practitioner, I'm slightly ashamed to say this, being offended when somebody came into the practice, a stranger complaining of chronic acute pain separated from their prescription. And I think they're taking me for an idiot or occasionally I'd get taken in. And it makes you indignant because as a doctor, you have this assumption that people are going to be honest with you. But addiction breeds desperation and desperation changes the moral horizon significantly. And the solution neatly in relation to opioids particularly is to take the view that your purpose is to reduce harm and that's not only reducing harm to the individual, it's also reducing harm to the community. Because people who have spent most of their waking hours looking for a supply of drugs or the money to buy a supply of drugs, they neglect other normal things that people focus on. They lose any concept of a future plan to a large extent. They sabotage their relationships with partners, families, relatives, and their life becomes narrowed down to a single focus. And if you just do that simple thing of providing them with the drug that they need in a format which is not likely to cause any harm to anybody else or the person you're giving it to, they have the energy to then turn to addressing the more important issues in life. It's a, pro it's a, a therapeutic approach which was trialled back in the 70s when I was a medical student. And as long as they stay engaged in the process, it's quite effective. People argue that they're still an addict. They're not an addict. They're not. They're dependent on medication. But you can argue that insulin dependent is dependent on insulin, but it doesn't make them an addict to insulin. And in the case of opioids, that is probably the most effective intervention we have. If we look at the US, there's a massive opioid epidemic over there. Yeah. How do you think that came about? I think you have to go back to the point 
somewhere before oral readily accessible opioids were available. And people had a variety of coping mechanisms to deal with their distress, I guess. They probably may go to the doctor often demanding some kind of assistance. They may drink. They may take other substances. But then this very successful marketing coup occurred with the availability of oxycodone. And the notion that was put about was that oxycodone was not like other opiates that it could be taken freely without at risk of dependence or other adverse outcomes. So it was prescribed willy-nilly. So people who were, would never normally have considered taking opiates or pursuing an illicit source of opiates were being provided with it quite openly. And that rapidly got out of control. There were some states like Florida where there wasn't adequate controls put on the distribution of them. So large numbers of people were coming in and obtaining prescriptions for opiates and what they call pill mills. They would come in with a manufactured medical history of back pain and x-rays and stuff, and they would obtain so many opiates that they could then go out and not only use them themselves, but sell them to others. And I think probably American society in particular, which tells you that there's a solution for everything. You don't need to suffer. No one needs to suffer. And that was the way they were marketed. And those opiates started leaching out into the community to people who were not tolerant of their effects. So the death rate started to increase. So the response of the authorities was to put sudden and blanket controls on the prescribing of oral opiates, which left a large group of people who otherwise would never have been involved in drug use at all in withdrawal and desperately needing opiates. So they turned to heroin. So the heroin trade rocketed up, where it had become quite minor. And more recently, the ready availability of fentanyl synthetic analogues has produced some spectacular statistics because it's so dangerous. What makes fentanyl so dangerous? Simply the fact that it's so potent. What seems like an average dose could be 100 times as potent as what you're accustomed to taking with heroin. So the figures for death from opioid overdose have exceeded the, not only the deaths from all other drugs combined, but all driving accidental deaths. Where do you think this attitude came from, this whole pressure for doctors to prescribe medicines to fix people's problems? Was there a need that people were crying out for help and doctors thought we could prescribe away the issues? Yeah, I hesitate to stray into an area that I have no expert knowledge of, but to me, it seems a little hard to understand why so many more people are presenting to doctors complaining of anxiety and depression. And I don't know where all that unhappiness has come from. You can have various kinds of theories. But the doctor is in an awkward position of only being able to do what he can do, she can do. And that has led to the massive increase in the prescription of antidepressants, for example, which are essentially largely ineffective in dealing with what these people are complaining of. I don't know, what did we do in the past? I have no idea. I, I, I'm certainly not going to suggest that we were tougher or more resilient or more prepared to put up with pain, but maybe we weren't presented with that as an alternative, going to the doctor and saying, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I don't suppose an 18-year-old, when I was 18, would have recognised depression as as meaning anything to them. So maybe it's a case where more exposure through publicity and causes people to think, oh yeah, that's what I've got. That's what's wrong with me. I need a pill. And I do think that, and this would have to be described as hypothesis on my behalf, I, I do think that the exposure to images and information through the internet on social media has raised people's expectations of what they should be entitled to. I guess they see people who are just like them, monetizing websites and becoming fabulous, and their level of dissatisfaction with their own lot, which they can see no particular way out of, increases. 
And if they're at the same time told, you're depressed, you need to see a doctor, they're going to take that option, aren't they? But I agree. I think there are, I've got some questions about this modern Western model of mental health yeah. and psychiatry because I feel like a lot of it is deficit-based, a lot of it is disease-based, and not enough of it is strengths-based, I guess, and solutions-based. You know, we talk about health in this model of physical health, emotional health, community, family health, spiritual health, um, connection to our surroundings. In other words, the haora Māori model of health. And I think that's the movement that we need to be moving towards because we, we a lot of the psychiatry and mental health movement of antidepressants, as you say, I feel like it's a lot of interventions that are targeted towards the individual person and there's not a lot we can do about a person's surroundings. I feel like community has really broken down our ability to connect with other people. Now that we're more connected than ever with social media, I feel we're less connected to the people around us. I don't get the impression from a distance that people or adolescents growing up into adulthood have changed that much. But the world they inhabit is a lot different from the one I did, I know that. They're constantly invited to con compare themselves with ideals that they're exposed to. And society is not that easy now. It was actually much easier when I was young. What was easier about when you were young? Well, I got an A bursary to go to university. I never so had to ask my parents. you didn't have a student loan? I never asked my parents for a cent in, the, in the, all the years I was at university. That wasn't because I was frugal. It was because it covered it. I never had any doubt about there would be work available when I finished training. My first flat, the rent was $5 per person. Per week? Yeah. What? <laughs> $5? But $2 for the kitty as well. The for the kitty? Food. Oh, yes. $7. Imagine living on $7 a week. <laughs> I just can't. And I think there was a general air of optimism then about life was okay. I used to listen to people predicting the future in the year 2000. And they said you would have so much leisure time you wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Oh, biggest lie. Because <laughs> computers would take over and it would all be But we're living in this situation where we're still having to do all the menial tasks and AI is taking over and writing poetry and making art and that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you look at it, it's a big disappointment, isn't it? <laughs> what we were promised. The realisation grew on us slowly over the years. We, we just looked back and thought, ah, no, it didn't work out like that after all. But it must be a lot different to start off in adult life accepting that you're never going to own a house. You're probably going to have four or five different careers during your working life. We were assured of a comfortable future. At the same time, we were wandering around embracing sort of hippie notions of peace, love and what have you. It's interesting to talk about the hippie era. This brings me to ask about, because obviously you were around during the time of the war on drugs and what was going on at that time. Yeah, that was a uniquely unfortunate time in our history, I think, as far as humans' relationship with substances. There was where it all became came to a head, if you like, was when Nixon was handling the final defeatist stages of the Vietnam War. And there was a strong movement in the US in particular that was anti-war. Students were everywhere protesting about how they shouldn't be in Vietnam. And they were right, of course. But for the government... For the administration, it was a major threat to have what is the next generation rejecting everything that they were supposedly stood for. How and did that have anything to do with the war on drugs? Well, there were two things 
One was that the Vietnam soldiers, and certainly the Vietnam veterans, were widely involved in drug use. Many of them, perhaps the majority of them, came back with some kind of drug dependency. What kind of drugs? As far as the veterans were concerned, they were mostly in the grips of PTSD and are mostly seeking pain relief. So it would have been primarily alcohol and many of them heroin, I'm sure. Why would they want to stamp out psychedelic drugs? We talk about, you, you talked about how these soldiers came back with dependency on alcohol and heroin. Why would they want to stamp out psychedelics but not do anything about alcohol? Well, it was a summer of love, so the soldiers were possibly not really the immediate concern of the administration because the soldiers were, they were ill. More soldiers died from suicide after Vietnam War than ever died on the battlefield. But at the same time, we'd had the quite sudden appearance of psychedelic drugs as a means of self-realisation, of self-improvement, of fully understanding the meaning of life. So perhaps we should go back to the history of psychedelic drugs. If you look back over thousands of years of human beings seeking substances to alter their feeling state, and one assumes they put a lot of energy into that because they found the most obscure substances to do it. For example, ayahuasca, which has been used for many thousands of years probably by the um, indigenous American people, required the combination of the bark from a root of one plant with the foliage from another. How many experiments would you have to do before you came up with that combination? I was just reading about some drug, I think it's like in Siberia or some somewhere in Europe where <laughs> it's from some plant and the traditional way to do it is to mix it with the milk of some animal and some wild blueberries and consume it. Yeah. And it passes through the body unchanged and so the person who consumes it then pees it out <laughs> and then... Everyone else drinks the pee, and that's how you do that drug. You'd rather be a pee drinker than a refiner, wouldn't you? <laughs> you had a better job. But somebody discovered that if you got the, the sex with the venom from a particular kind of toad in California and dried it out and smoked it, you could have a really nice psychedelic experience. How many different animals had he tried before he came out? <laughs> how many times did you have to die? Yeah. <laughs> Taking some some toxic toad. <laughs> You'd have to assume there were a few mistakes along the way. <laughs> and just luck onto the first go. And so I think that indicates that it's part of the human condition. We've got a big enough brain to be not happy with the status quo. And so a lot of us look around, did look around, for things to alleviate the, was it misery, was it boredom? I don't know, was it just novelty? Do you think it was that or do you think it was more about just finding a higher purpose and thinking deeper, philosophizing. Yeah, I think it was probably that, to be honest. I think that the human, when left to think about it, starts pondering on what the real meaning of life is. And to my mind, psychedelic drugs are a shortcut to that position. And I think there's plenty of, shall we say, anecdotal evidence to suggest that it is the same process as, for example, prolonged and dedicated transcendental meditation. People who enter trance-like states as, as the result of intense concentration over a long period of time, tapping into that same pathway that psychedelics lead you to a lot more easily. And there are psychedelic practices going back thousands of years, particularly in middle America, parity, mescaline, psilocybin, mushrooms and cactuses, which they discovered were psychoactive. And the interesting thing about that is it endured. You wouldn't keep doing something for thousands of years that was bad for you, would you? Do you think evolution? <laughs> well... Well, if it had really bad consequences, they'd become apparent. 
what we're really talking about is re-looking at psychedelic substances to see what use they can be. And that has had a very interesting history over the last century. Why is it that they were apparent? They were being studied in the 50s and 60s and then the war on drugs. And why do you think there's a sort of, I don't know, like a psychedelic renaissance right now? Yeah, well, this is what I find most interesting these days. There are a few substances which have been rediscovered, if you like, by the Western world. There's ibogaine from Western Africa. There's ayahuasca from Northern South America and peyote and psilocybin. And it's apparent that those drugs have been used as a part of quite ritualized, traditional, deliberate seeking of higher understanding. And then I guess Coincidentally, really, several of these substances were synthesized or refined and studied in the 20th century. So ecstasy, MDMA, was first synthesized in about early 1900s, about 1915. LSD, which is the most famous of them, was synthesized or refined by Albert Hoffman in 1934. So they're not new substances, but the LSD story is quite interesting. He accidentally discovered its properties, probably by rubbing some in his eye. <laughs> Oh, man, and, they, they um, tell us in chemistry that you're supposed to wash your hands, wear yeah. gloves, wear goggles. <laughs> well, imagine what we would have missed out on if he'd washed his hands. <laughs> and Sandos, which was the company that owned the patent for it, for whom he worked, were desperate to find some use for it. So they made it freely available to anybody with a decent reputation for scientific ethics. And there was something like 40,000 doses of LSD administered in an experimental setting over the next 20 years, roughly. And there was no real problems arose, but everybody was desperate to find a use for this drug. So it was used in a wide variety of settings during the 40s and 50s and 60s. And even the CIA was keen to find a use for it. They studied it extensively in the 50s. What would the CIA want to, anything to do with LSD? <laughs> Their notion was that it could be used as a truth drug. That's where all the truth serum kind of idea yeah. came from. And apparently a secondary purpose was that they could use it to embarrass foreign powers by poisoning them with it and then exposing their erratic behaviour while they were having a psychedelic experience. But they lost interest in it because the thing about a psychedelic trip, if you like, is your mind wanders very freely and it's very suggestible. So if you're in an interrogation setting, you'd probably say yes to anything if, <laughs> if it seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Yeah, but I guess if we talk about Guantanamo Bay and torture and all that, you'd probably say yes to things with torture as well, wouldn't you? Yeah. I think I'd rather have the LSD. <laughs> <laughs> and then the real problem that happened was that it, it escaped into the so-called recreational environment. It's all history that Timothy Leary, who was a professor of psychology at Harvard, attempted to start a clinical study of the effects and utility of psychedelics, but he became frustrated and I guess all became slightly misguided in the sense that he felt that the free provision of this to the whole society would create some kind of major societal change and everybody would be much better off as a result of using LSD. And it may even be true to some degree, but... <laughs> Anyway, well, I mean, do you think that if he hadn't done that, perhaps LSD would have stayed within the sort of therapeutic Western medicine sort of model? Oh, you know, you have to be prescribed this by a doctor for a certain indication, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Would have been good if it did, but it's an ongoing problem. He was certainly not unaware of the risks of taking it in an unsupervised environment. He actually 
I think, introduced the concept of set and setting for the use of psychedelics. Set being where you're at in your head at the time. If you've got a great deal of worry on your mind or there's something very threatening going on in your environment, psychedelics are not going to help. They'll make it significantly worse. And the same applies if you feel unsafe where you are. Those are two primary principles of using psychedelics. But what happened as a result of his propagating this kind of very positive idea about tune in, turn on, drop out, I think that was the, the phrase that, was, that we heard. And there was a summer of love in San Francisco. I was about 16 when that, when that happened. Did that happen here in New Zealand as well, the hippie revolution? Didn't happen to me. I was in boarding school, but, <laughs> um, to a minor degree. New Zealand was not the open society that, it, that, it, that California was at the time, or San Francisco in particular. But it just became too much for the American administration. They, they couldn't tolerate this degree of apparent anarchy. Kids were dropping out of college and just abandoning all notion of becoming a successful person in, the, in this society, the way it was structured. So it was a turning point in social evolution. And that was when Nixon was moved to launch the war on drugs. The war on drugs was about disruption of social order and the notion that it was threatening to consider some alternative view of how society might succeed. It was the American administration pulling everybody back into line. So, so you it think it was a distraction? Yeah, they needed support for the, to continue the Vietnam War and they needed the status quo to be maintained. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. When we talk about drugs, there's all these different types of drugs. Like in, when we talk about medicine, like conventional Western medicine, we, ha- we use all these drugs yeah. in our practice, right? Mm. And there's so many different types of drugs, so many different classes of drugs with different forms of action for different purposes, and they're not all the same, right? We talk about blood pressure medicines like an ACE inhibitor, Captopril or something like that, mm. and we talk about anti-lipid medicines like simvastatin, which reduces our cholesterol. And those two drugs have completely different functions and completely different mechanism of action. So we can, as doctors, we can say, oh, these are two completely different drugs. They've got essentially got nothing to do with each other, right? But it seems that with the war on drugs, we've decided to just paint this really broad stroke of saying all drugs are bad, except alcohol and except caffeine and Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What makes you so interested in psychedelics? We haven't had any initiatives and new approaches chemically to the notion of psychiatric treatment since the introduction of the SSRIs, really, which I think goes back as far as the 80s, so it's a long time ago now. And the problem with research into psychedelic drugs and what their value might be was it was largely put on hold for the best part of 50 years. They were reclassified as Class A, the most dangerous substances you could deal with at the end of the 60s. And then there was just a tiny trickle of research into MDMA and things that was more or less undercover until well into the 2000s. 
And then they've started to study them again with much more interest. And my particular interest is that they, they appear to be so effective and so relatively safe. Is there any evidence to suggest that psych- psychedelics can be addictive? No, I don't think so. Yes, to me, there's this compelling long ancient history where the use of these things has continued, which tends to me to imply that their, their value outweighs their harms to a significant extent or users would cease, wouldn't they? Well, that argument falls down where it comes to alcohol. Right? <laughs> yeah, prob- alcohol's been around for ages, Adrian. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem with alcohol is it's in small quantities, it's relatively pleasant and relatively low in risk. The difficulty is that it's dose-dependent. That's right. Everything's the, dose-dependent. Yeah. You could die from drinking too much water. Yes, which is probably what the people died of, incidentally, when they were accused of dying of psychedelic use. I mentioned Professor David Nutt before, the guy who said that ecstasy use was safer than horse riding. He points out comprehensively that a lot of the deaths that were attributed to ecstasy use and in a lot of cases, it's either water intoxication or overheating, and it's the physical effects of the body as a result of the response they make to the behaviours that the drug induces. It's not the drug, per se. It's something that should be able to be managed by decent education and safety precautions. And hasn't that happened? Aren't there chill-out rooms and plenty of water available? Are raves even a thing anymore? I don't know. I don't know about raves, but festivals are definitely a thing. I think it's really interesting that we've had Know Your Stuff. Mm. Yeah, I think that's been actually a really good thing that we've had at festivals. So I've seen a lot of people use that service, Know Your Stuff, to get their drugs tested. And I think that's actually got direct impacts on how we deliver healthcare because Know Your Stuff is able to collect this data from all the testing that they do on drugs. And so we can actually see that um, people are thinking that they've bought ecstasy or MDMA, but it's actually something else which can mimic MDMA but has all these bad side effects. And that's actually been really helpful for the emergency departments and the toxicologists because they can identify, oh, actually 70% of the MDMA is actually something else and so we need to be careful Mm. so that when we've got someone who we think has got an MDMA overdose that they're actually treating something else. People on the whole don't willfully poison themselves. So, you know, if you tell them this is not a good thing, they'll take notice. It's part of the process of harm reduction, which seems like the only rational approach to drug addiction and drug overuse and abuse and has been the guiding principle of New Zealand drug policy for quite some time now, I'm pleased to say. But it still took a long time. The ineffective nature of prohibition, what mostly happens when you restrict some a person's supply of of sums which they want to get at is they'll just try harder and become more adventurous or more inventive. For example, smoking is banned in prison, but because you don't can't smoke, you're allowed to have patches, nicotine patches. So then the usual thing with nicotine patches is you soak them in tea leaves and then you smoke the tea leaves. <laughs> homemade homemade People tobacco. Are really smart. Yeah. We don't give them enough credit. People are endlessly Innovative. Yeah. I want to bring it back to your interest in psychedelics. What evidence is there that psychedelics could be therapeutic? Yeah, thank you. I think there's a ton of it, really. The thing that is very encouraging about psychedelics is we've got a lot of evidence about what they do and how they do what they do. There is no doubt that the the network of 
um, circuitry in the brain is far too complex for anybody to ever understand. The, the numbers of connections and cross-connections and things is just mind-boggling. And the number of different chemicals involved in transmitting impulses is also probably way beyond what we understand now. But they have been able to demonstrate that there are parts of the brain which respond quite specifically to exposure to psychedelic drugs, and, and there's a very reasonable explanation for why that happens, which I'll attempt to explain, shall I? Go, go on. What they've established is that in the absence of these things, we're talking about the normal state, there's this circuit in the brain called the default mode network, which they've named the default mode network. And that's an area of the brain which kind of percolates when you're not doing anything in particular. It's a notion that the it's part... It's like autopilot. Of, yeah, it's a part of your brain that's busy when you're daydreaming. But it's also thought to be the part of the brain where your self-image resides. It's where a lot of your self-talk might be directed. Like your internal monologue, do you mean? Yeah, your internal monologue, yeah, which we all have and some people have more than others. I think the more goal-directed you are and ambitious and concentrating on what you're doing, the less time you spend thinking about yourself. But the, the more time you've got on your hands, the more you tend to draw, the draw into yourself and think. Is this where the, the self-doubt kind of voice comes from as well? Or? Yeah, that network is particularly busy the more kind of ruminative and negative you are. It's very active in people who are depressed and it seems to be correlated directly with that notion that I'm a bad person, nobody could possibly like me, I can't do this. Psychedelic drugs actually inhibit that default mode network and open up, expand massively the number of impulses that are getting out into other parts of the cerebral cortex. And it's thought, in fact, that's the kind of native state that maybe that's what you're born with. So that when you wave a bright-coloured card in front of a baby, they're seeing some really amazing images. And then the process of the development and growth through childhood is a process of organising and controlling and making sense of those images so that everything starts to fit in and become adaptive rather than just a massive overload of information. With psychedelic drugs, that situation is mimicked. Psychedelics basically means mind expansion and, and that's essentially what goes on. You revert to a more primitive sensory state where you've got a lot of in input from all sorts of directions. So you have visual hallucinations, less often auditory hallucinations perhaps, but all kinds of things like anything goes. The problem with it being as if you are anxious or not personally likes being out of control, it's very frightening, which is why it shouldn't really be thought of as a home therapy. But there is every evidence that with one or two exposures to a dose of the, those substances, with the appropriate support and the appropriate preparation, that there is permanent change brought about in the way the brain is routinely, if you like, reflexively functioning. So it, in some surprising way, the effect of it is lasting. And that's what is most encouraging about it. Because unlike most other, or virtually any other form of mental health therapy, it has an end point, a start point and an end point, which is quite close together. You might only need one treatment, which might involve up to a total of 12 sessions perhaps, but one treatment episode, and you're good to go for a good long time. That's the evidence anyway. People who cast doubts on the effectiveness of psychedelics say, well, we don't have long-term follow-up. And of course, we don't have long-term follow-up if the, those study subjects have only went through the treatment five years ago or less and haven't even been followed up for five years. But we've got like 6,000 years of follow-up. <laughs> on the same sort of thing and people kept doing it it must have had some advantage 
I think it's interesting with psilocybin. It's not just one species of mushroom. And I think there are several species that we've identified in New Zealand that are native that actually grow psilocybin, which is quite interesting. But the, the point being is that they're native to New Zealand yeah. and we have an indigenous population in New Zealand. Undoubtedly, the, the, the Maori who were here pre-colonisation, who lived so close to the land, undoubtedly they would have known the benefits of native plants, right? Like mm. we're talking about the kawakawa and yeah, yeah. there are all sorts of plant medicines that mm. are native to New Zealand. I just think there's no way that they didn't know. And I think it's really interesting that there's a um, marae iwi somewhere in New Zealand that um, are looking at the therapeutics of um, psilocybin growing mushrooms and whether they can use that for um, methamphetamine addiction. Yeah. Right. yeah. Whether that can be used as a way that's given to the community rather than putting a patent on it and controlling it from a Western medical point of yeah. view because there are a lot of indigenous populations that we say around the world who mm. have used psychedelics. For example, I think Mexico or, or somewhere thereabouts, um, indigenous populations use the peyote cactus yeah. and um, it's protected for their use. Like they can yeah. gather it legally and all that. But I think with the psychedelic renaissance, there was a bit of blowback because then non-Indigenous people started collecting the peyote and then so the peyote cactus fields, they all got all the peyote got used up because yeah. it then became mainstream and yeah. then actually we should empower the Indigenous people to keep the peyote for themselves instead of, say, taking them in, into the Western medicine mm. and make it like a doctor-only prescription. What do you think about that with psychedelics? Well, that's that's interesting you raise that. It's very fascinating to think that there, I suppose there were members of Maori tribes who ate mushrooms as part of their natural gathering instinct. And But I guess there hasn't been an oral tradition that survived talking about it in any certainty. But, but I think it's, I, I'm not speaking for Maori, obviously, because I'm not a Maori person, but like a lot of Maori traditional healing and all that got stamped out through colonization. Right. We lost, Maori lost a lot of that knowledge. Yeah, yeah. The other part of your question was in relation to the challenge between indigenous use and. Or at least like a medicalization of it versus a non medicalization use. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like I think, for example, in Australia with the Therapeutic Goods. Therapeutic, therapeutic Goods Authority. Yeah, the ther with the Therapeutic Goods Authority, they've recently, I think, legalised or changed their, their rules so that certified doctors, presumably mm. psychiatrists, can prescribe MDMA and psilocybin yeah. in a controlled setting, which is great. But then I think I question that, will that just set it up so that only the, the wealthy will be able to access these therapies? Pro Obviously, that would be Probably in all sincerity. Oh, there's a real problem, there's a real tension between the escape of these substances into the casual use for fun community and therapeutic use. And I don't think there's any way around that. I mean, it's happened before, it'll happen again. You've got to just, through education, make an absolute distinction between what is psychedelic-based therapy and just advise and educate people as the risks of taking them recreationally. Yeah, the education the, that I received when I was in school was all drugs are bad. Yeah. <laughs> We had an organisation which was specifically dedicated to putting that message out and an unfortunate thing because in a lot of cases it's been 40, demonstrated... 49% of New Zealanders have tried recreational drugs. <laughs> yeah. Seemingly the more education you give to young people about drugs, the more likely they are to try them. It raises their curiosity rather than reduces it. Interesting. Which is, I'd expect it when you could predict it. Then the harm, I guess the question is how much harm does it produce? If people are using more drugs but doing it more safely, then is it still harmful? 
Yes, it all comes down to the question of whether the substance itself is intrinsically safe, isn't it? If we look at the drugs that are currently the substance du jour, we have a lot of focus on methamphetamine or other amphetamine derivatives. Now, they are really not safe in the sense that they induce, I think, reckless and disinhibited behaviour. They affect your judgement, they make you tired, they keep you up all night and lead you to start having weird thoughts. The notion of people taking methamphetamine and then becoming somewhat manic and doing things they wouldn't normally consider doing is a significant risk. Methamphetamine is not a safe drug. And we haven't really come up with a solution to that at all. We have methadone for opiate use. Is there a potential that for people who with methamphetamine, I, I don't really know much about the drug yeah. interactions and actions and things like that, but is there a place for methamphetamine to be substituted with dexamphetamine for yeah. the ADHD drug? It's a dream solution if you can give somebody a, a free and easy supply of something that does them no harm, but it only really applies to opiates or the drugs that we're thinking about. Why Apparently. is that? Because opiates, if they're used in a dose which is safe and administered via a route which is safe, which is by mouth rather than intravenously, have no great risk associated with them. They'll make you a bit drowsy. You might not be advised to operate machinery or um, drive a car, but they're not really health-threatening until you either take too much, more than your system is able to cope with, or you introduce at the same time as introducing the drug various kinds of exotic infections which do you a great deal of harm. And substitution treatment for amphetamines has certainly been tried. It's been tried here. It's been tried various places around the world. But it's something about the effect of that drug that it's less inclined to cause settling down of the person's behaviour. It's more likely to cause more chaos. They make hasty decisions, they ruin relationships, do things they wouldn't normally do which are dangerous. There's that subgroup of people who appear to improve with amphetamine use. I'm thinking of the ADHD group. Allegedly, the incidence of adult ADHD is maybe three or four or five percent. In America, it's significantly higher. And you have to question the basis of the diagnosis at that point. You can't really say one population is likely to be more susceptible to attention deficit than another. There Sometimes a, I question the whole basis of the... Uh... DSM, the Diagnostic yeah. Statistics Manual, am I? Is Probably it even beyond the real? scope of this conversation, isn't it? <laughs> the, and there are some people who clearly do settle using most commonly methylphenidate or something like that, which is essentially an amphetamine-like substance. I want to bring it back to your experiences as a, an addiction specialist. With the feeling that mental health is getting worse, addiction still being an issue, how can we move past this? How can we move forward? Yes, we are told repeatedly by the press that we are in the grips of a mental health epidemic. It comes back to what we were talking about somewhat earlier, about what constitutes mental illness. Because I don't think there's any compelling evidence that there's an increase in the kind of severe psychotic disorders that we would put at the hard end. Like schizophrenia of, like and schizophrenia things like that. And, and major mood disorders, really serious illnesses, which are intensely disruptive to the people who suffer them. I think the increase in incidence is mostly it's referred to as a combination of anxiety and depression and uh, also... Do you think it's situational? Yeah, arguably, because along with anxiety and depression often comes that urge for people to engage in self-medication, which often involves overuse of some substance they've come by and been exposed to. 
sometimes I feel like there's so much anxiety and depression about the world and where the world is heading that I think we're all, a lot of us young people anyway, seeking things to blunt the feelings or numb the feelings. Yeah. Because it's like you say before, how hard it is to afford studying, afford the cost of living yeah. and all these things and comparing us, constantly comparing ourselves to other people that we seek ways to numb ourselves, whether yeah. it's with substances, alcohol or other drugs or yeah. other forms of addiction. Sometimes I like to think I'm a, I have been a little bit addicted to adrenaline infusing uh, uh, sports like skiing and yeah. mountain biking and all that, or other people mm. just want to run away from this world and go traveling as a way to try and deal with their feelings. Yeah, I, I know what you're getting at. And I, I can honestly say that I think that you and people of your background have a far better position than I am to comment on that. My my experience is no longer in common with young people. The best I can understand it is through my children. There is definitely the possibility that, that the world is a gloomier place than it used to be. I think the world is always a gloomier place when you get old. There's all this kind of nostalgia for the way things used to be. So we're not the right people to ask, but I think maybe it is significantly less optimistic than it was in our day. To embrace something like the hippie movement, you've got to be very optimistic, don't you? You've got to think that life's just going to be a breeze. So it was an optimistic time, and it is probably a lot harder now. Yeah, and I just worry that this movement that we need, more psychiatrists, more mental health hospitals, is not going to fix the problem. No, we damn well don't, that's for sure. It goes back to the fundamental theme of your blog, generally, the first thousand days. Honestly, the problem does lie in the first thousand days. There's no question about it. If we could give every child an idyllic upbringing and then set them off, on, they could probably cope with almost anything. The trouble is you can't do it. You can't, because you can't take those children out of the environment in which they exist and create an idyllic environment for them instead, you've got to not only treat the child, you've got to treat several generations before it. So you never catch up. So that's well, why we'll I think... we'll never catch up if we never start. No, that's true. But I, I'm inclined to think that if you started with those damaged people at an age where they could still massively contribute to the world after getting better, in inverted commas, if you had some way of massively improving their view of the world so that a lot of the destructive elements were removed from their environment and from the way they respond to it. That would feed back onto the children they raised. This is all somewhat utopian. You can't actually treat a whole population with psychedelic therapy because it's too expensive and too time-consuming initially. So something I think you mentioned earlier on is, is likely to happen. It's likely to go to the well-to-do who least need it and, and can most afford it initially. But with time, there could be change. You've got to maintain that possibility. Optimism. Yeah. Initially, there's no doubt that psychedelic therapy has to be delivered under controlled circumstances. But that doesn't have to be necessarily medically or psychiatrically trained. It could be trained in many other respects. It could be trained in... Community elders. Yeah, in, in the art of empathy and, and neutral support. If you were able to develop communities like the Ayahuasca Church in South America who just supported each other to go through these psychedelic experiences, you probably don't need a massively complicated medical system to back that up. If people have that capacity to flush the system and to some degree reset and put that trauma that they carried all their life until then as a kind of a septic lump in their chest which has prevented them from doing so many things which have otherwise would have been 
helpful to them and helpful to the community, that's a start, isn't it? That, that, that could work. Because if we keep doing the same thing that we've been doing over and over again and expecting a different outcome... Definition of madness, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> One last question. What is the most inspiring book or movie or experience you've ever had? I know you ask that question because I've heard you ask it to other people. I was talking to my friend who I was away with on the weekend. Okay. The most inspiring movie I decided on discussing it the other day was a movie called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And that's pretty much the end of the conversation because I can't really say anything more about it that I found so terrific, but it was just the most terrific, memorable movie that I've ever seen. In relation to the most inspiring thing I've ever seen is watching young monks in a Buddhist temple. When I was working in Nepal, we had Tibetan monasteries not too far away. And on one occasion, I was required to go to this Tibetan monastery late at night. And what had happened was the Lama, the, the, the chief most religiously revered person in the monastery, had been away for the summer in in Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama. And he came back with a retinue of people. And on his way up to the monastery, he fell off his horse going over a bridge and dislocated his, um, his elbow. And they came and fetched me, which took a couple of hours. And um, after attending to him as best I could, they asked me to, attend, to go with them up to the monastery. And we got there late at night because we'd been delayed. And all the monks had turned out in their greatest finery to welcome him back. And they had the the big long barping trumpets and little clarinet type things and the drums and they're all dressed in colourful colourful costumes and, and the noise and everything was just so exotic. It was just like nothing I'd never seen before, ever seen before. That's the most, it remains the most inspiring sight I've, I've ever had in relation to the impact it had on me at the time. But on another occasion I was at a monastery and there was this young boy, obviously like a novitiate, and I just... Something about it just overwhelmed me and I, I cried effusively for some time. And I don't really know what that was about, but it was some kind of, I just felt the weight of life lifting off me somehow. I think it's the thing is, as somebody who's not religious, I still feel like you can still be spiritual, that there's still something about connection with another person that's key to being alive. Yeah, yeah. Spirituality and, and need for mysticism hide somewhere inside all of us and different things bring it out. Even Bill Wilson, the originator of um, Alcoholics Anonymous, said in the early stages of him developing it that some kind of mystical experience or spiritual transformation was required to really get over addiction. So there's no doubt that if you do in some way achieve that, it has a very potent effect. But I'm not inclined to believe that it's essential to that effect of psychedelic therapy. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Dr. Adrian. Pleasure. Thank you. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and tatiriti or waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.